You're going to notice a theme this morning as we uh, spend time in our service singing some additional songs. That we're focusing on that concept today. Jesus is Savior. And part of that is because we're in Mark chapter 1 today, verses 2 through 13. We'll do a brief introduction, kind of reminding us what we looked at last week. But we learned last week that each of the gospel writers had a unique purpose in writing their books. We have four Gospels. The question is, why do we have four? Well, it's because they have a different purpose, and they have a different audience. Remember, Luke's purpose was to write an accurate historical account, which is why we have with him a great historian. We have his Gospel of Luke, and then we have the book of Acts, which really kind of makes up one giant book, if you will. One tells the story of Christ's earthly ministry. The other tells the story, the historical account of the early church. And so Luke was a historian. That was sort of what drove him. In fact, we're told in the beginning of his books that he researched it very carefully. So he paid attention to fine detail, again, because it was a historical account. Matthew, on the other hand, was focused primarily on the teaching of Jesus. And that's why, if you remember last week, I kind of held up my Bible, which is a red-letter edition. And you walk through yours where, as you went through the book of Matthew, you saw a lot of red. And then when you went to the book of Mark, you didn't see quite as much. Well, it's because Matthew's purpose and focus was primarily on the teaching of Jesus. So he allowed Jesus to do the majority of the speaking, if you will, in his gospel. John's gospel served as more of an apologetic and evangelistic tool. John tells us outright in his that he wrote what he did so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God and might have eternal life. And so John, in some respects, was probably likely aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, and saw a need to sort of fill in the holes, if you will. And so we see a lot of things in John's Gospel that we don't necessarily see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And again, the whole focus is to show Jesus as the Son of God that we might know how to be saved. That leads us to Mark. Mark's purpose is to reveal Jesus Christ as two things. The Christ, or the Messiah, but then also the Son of God. If you remember, he does this in his prologue, if you're in his um, introductory statement, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He mentions those two things right there. And then today he's going to cover both of those topics in his prologue. This is, in some respects, still part of his introduction. So he's going to look at those two concepts, Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as the Son of God. He's going to make some declarations that are going to give us an idea of what proves those two realities. So he's going to have two specific events today that he's going to talk about. And we know that the way that Mark lays this book out is that immediately after this prologue, in some respects, he starts a long story that moves very rapidly. Jesus beginning in Galilee, coming out of the wilderness, and then making his way down to Jerusalem. And so the, the Gospel of Mark is really kind of all about Jesus getting to Jerusalem. Because ultimately... We see through that journey him revealed as the Messiah and the Son of God. And we saw that um, last week that right about in the middle of the book, Peter makes a declaration, a confession. Remember what that confession is? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And what what did Peter respond? You are the Christ. And then at the end of the book, we have this Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at Christ. And what does he confess? What does he say? Surely this is... The Son of God. And so that's sort of Mark's gospel in a nutshell. Well, today he's going to sort of introduce us to that before he starts his story. 
by basically revealing to us, or in some respects, showing us the proof that Jesus is who he has just said in verse 1. He is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. And he's going to point to two very specific events that take place. One is the coming of John the Baptist. The second is Jesus' baptism where the Father actually speaks and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. So that's going to be the first uh, six verses. Let me read this to you. Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were, ba- they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John, with, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie, his, or untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." So as he begins his story of Jesus, he actually introduces us to John the Baptist. And the question is, why would he do that? Why is that significant or important to us? Well, the simple answer to that is because it's one of the things that proves Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Ever since the fall of mankind, God has promised that he would send a Savior. He would send a man. Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, if you would, with me. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to do a little bit of hopping around today. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Anybody remember? Adam and Eve sinned. sinned. We refer to it as the fall. Okay? The creation account is in chapter 1. Chapter 2 covers the specific creation of Adam and Eve. And then we have almost immediately upon that, the fall. People have asked, well, how quickly did Adam fall after that? I would suggest probably within the same day. Um, There's some technical reasons for that too. We won't go into now. But likely it came pretty quick. But look at chapter 3, verse 15. Immediately after they sin and God begins to talk to them, he makes this interesting statement to Eve. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'm sorry, he's talking to the serpent here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That means her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is a reference to what we call the Proto-Evangelon, the first gospel. That's the first indication that God will provide a seed, a descendant of Eve, that ultimately will crush the head of the enemy in the garden. Later, he identifies that physical descendant to Abraham as a descendant of Abraham. Turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, going down to verse 15. He's speaking to Abraham now. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed, singular, shall bless or shall possess the gate of their head, or I'm sorry, that's one, that one's plural, in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So again, we have this concept of the seed. We have Adam or Eve being promised, Adam being promised, that God will send a seed through Eve, 
that will crush the head of Satan. Now we have Abraham being told that your seed will ultimately bless all of the earth. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. A little bit later on, God reveals something to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. What he basically does here is he promises through Isaiah that God himself will come in the flesh as this seed and ultimately we know the rest of the story that he will save his people from their sins. So what we have in the Old Testament is God promised to send a savior to save people from their sins. It is referred to as Mashiach, or Messiah, the Anointed One in the Old Testament. It is a theme that is consistent throughout the Old Testament. In fact, recently it's been rather interesting to watch within evangelical circles the number of leaders and and pastors and even teachers and professors that are now saying that the Old Testament really isn't about Jesus. They're clearly missing the point. In fact, I've got a small book I bought bought recently at home. It's about that thick. It's written by a, by a, a Messianic Jew, a scholar, and his whole point in writing the book was to counteract what's happening now in evangelical circles. If you've heard recently, Andy Stanley said it's time that we, as Christians, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. He's made a number of other comments about how it doesn't really matter what you believe about certain parts of Genesis. It really doesn't matter. Because really, we should unhitch ourselves. Somebody forwarded on an article the other day to me um, that, that was sort of along that same vein from the same individual um, basically saying that Jesus negates the law, that we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments, none of that stuff is important because it's all been replaced by one command. Just love Jesus. Or, I'm sorry, just love others, actually, is the way he said it. Just love others. And again, it's a downplaying of the, of the importance of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Christ. It's all about the coming Messiah. It's God's redemptive plan being unfolded. And so, when we look at this, We have to say, why did did he start with John the Baptist? Well, it's because of that, that there is this plan of God throughout the Old Testament to send himself, if you will, God in the flesh to earth to save his people from their sins. But there's one more small piece that's important here. How would we know who that individual is? Well, it tells us. Because God says, I'll let you know by sending a messenger that will reveal to you who this Messiah is. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 40. You can go there with me if you'd like. If not, I will just read it. God told Israel that before I do that, before Emmanuel comes, before I reveal who he is, I will send a messenger who will prepare the way for me to come in the flesh. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, O comfort, my people, say, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a way for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will 
will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That is a prophecy of John the Baptist. It is the coming messenger that will pave the way for God to come in the flesh, to be revealed in the flesh. So not only did God promise a Messiah, but he promised a messenger that would come before him to reveal that Messiah, so that they would know. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says it this way, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord elsewhere. He's referred to as a recoming of sorts of the prophet Elijah. Why does Mark start his gospel talking about John the Baptist? Remember, his purpose is to show Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. And so in order to do that, he goes all the way to the Old Testament, says, a messenger's coming. And when that messenger comes, he's going to make the way of the Lord. And that's John the Baptist. And so he starts with John the Baptist. Notice what John does here. Go back to Mark chapter... I'm sorry, Mark. I keep saying John because his name is John Mark. So we go back to Mark. Notice the first thing he does. He says he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. We've already read part of it. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make way the way of the Lord. He actually attributes that quote to Isaiah, but it's actually three Old Testament passages that he kind of jammed together. Exodus chapter 23, Isaiah 40, and Malachi 3. He takes those three and he sort of puts them together here. It was common in Jesus' day, when quoting the Old Testament, to do that, to combine passages. We have the advantage of chapter marks, section headings, Bible verses. Those were all added. Those are not inspired. What Mark had here was a big scroll with no spaces. They just took all the letters together. They didn't even put spaces between the words. And part of it was to save space. Parchment was not cheap. And so oftentimes, they would simply take passages from different places, bring them together because they were associated, said basically the same thing, and they might only mention one of the prophets that had said them, and that's exactly what Mark does here. So he does that. He grabs these three different passages from three places of the Old Testament, puts them together, attributes them to Isaiah, a prophet of God. And for John, for John Mark, it's his proof that this individual, John the Baptist, is that messenger You know what's interesting about this? He says that a messenger will arrive before Messiah for the purpose of preparing the way. That's exactly what he has John say, John or John the Baptist say in this passage. Says that he would be preaching in the wilderness. That's exactly what we find. John spent his entire ministry preaching out in the wilderness. When he reveals John as this as this messenger in verse 4, he says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. He's basically taken that prophecy from Isaiah, saying, I'm going to send somebody in the wilderness. And he now says, and John appeared in the wilderness. He's the messenger. What I find interesting about this is, this would have been rather startling, because the last thing said in the Old Testament pretty much comes from Micah. And Micah, in chapter 3, as we learned, prophesied the coming, or second coming, if you will, of, a, of an Elijah-like prophet. 
Anybody know how many years it had been between Micah's prophecy and what's happening now in Mark? Anybody want to take a wild guess? I've got 500 years here. Steve? About 400 years that God was silent. It's called the silent era. God spoke through Micah. The last thing he said, I'm going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way for me to come. And then God stopped talking, at least on a large scale. Until all of a sudden here, new prophet with that message. And so it had been almost 400 years since Israel had heard God speak, since they had a national prophet. What's interesting is that there was a tremendous amount of excitement around Israel at this time as well. Secular sources even tell us that there was a sort of a rising expectation that Messiah was about to come. It might have been the work of the Holy Spirit moving people because there wasn't a prophet declaring that yet. But, but we, again, we can go back into some of the historical records and secular writings that there was this anticipation and this excitement. Israel was getting agitated and edgy waiting, expecting, something's going to happen. In fact, a particular group of Jewish individuals called the Essenes moved out into the wilderness. That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from. And they actually did that, went out to the wilderness because they expected this. And so that's exactly what happens. And so in the Gospel of Mark, he says, a voice is going to come in the wilderness. Oh, and guess what? John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and did exactly what the Old Testament said he would do. So even though God had been silent, he's now speaking. Speaking in a way that was prophesied exactly as one might expect. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, he said in verse 4. Look at what happens in verse 5. He says, And all the country of Judah was coming, or Judea was coming out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. And what does it say here? Confessing their sins. We're told that John was preaching a baptism of repentance. That's exactly what the Old Testament told us would happen. He would come and call Israel to repentance. The other thing John did was he pointed the hearts of the people back to the Lord, just as Isaiah had prophesied. Look at what happens in verses 7 and 8. It says, And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I am, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Remember, what God said is, I'll send my messenger and he will point you to me. He will turn the hearts of the people back to me. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. He's out there in the wilderness going, okay, Messiah's coming. You better prepare. It's time to repent. But you know what? He's more important than me. It's not me. Um, The other Gospels tell us that maybe the reason why John said what he said in verses 7 and 8, was because the people were thinking maybe John the Baptist was Messiah. And so John was out there clarifying, saying, no, it's not me. He's coming after me. I'm simply here to pave the way. I'm simply here to point your hearts to him. He's mightier than, mightier than I am. In fact, elsewhere it says that he was mightier because um, he had existed before John did. And so what we really have here in this first section is that Mark is, is looking at the Old Testament, seeing the prophecies given about a messenger coming, identifies that messenger for us as John the Baptist. John does, or Mark does one other thing here that's kind of interesting. Remember how I said sometimes he sticks in these little details 
And you kind of go, well, that's kind of a weird detail to just kind of stick in there. Remember I mentioned the, the dude that ran away without his clothes on? I still don't understand what that passage is really about. <laughs> don't know why he put that in there. Um, but notice here he says something in verse 6. He just right in the middle of this sticks this little comment about the kind of clothes that he wore and the food he ate. It says, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Those It really is. It's not locust plants. Some people try to say, that's locust. No, it was locusts. That's what it is. Good source of protein. It's actually fairly healthy. Not that I want to try it. Why do you suppose Mark threw in the little details of what John the Baptist looked like? It's speculative. But even probably... Probably looked like you might expect a prophet to look like, especially one that's out of the wilderness. In fact, I, su- I would suggest that this is probably Mark's way of saying, in some respects, he even looks like Elijah. He even looks like a prophet. Um, don't know for sure, but sometimes these small details might give us a little clue into what he's thinking. And so it may be that there's even a visual representation here that Mark kind of throws in. He even looked, acted, and dressed like a prophet, and like you might expect. And so all of this, all of this so far, is Mark's way of saying, I told you that this is the beginning of the gospel of Christ the Messiah. And we know it's the Messiah. We know Jesus is the Messiah because John was the promised prophet, Elijah, coming to point us to Christ, to identify him as Messiah. The second thing that he does is he told us he would show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he does that in the second half of this prologue here. If you look at verses 9 through 13, we'll read those. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was, in the, he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. So he moves from the baptism of John, I'm sorry, from the um, preaching of John in the wilderness to the baptism of Christ. Now, according to Matthew, Jesus first approached John to be baptized, and John actually objected. I'm going to go ahead and just read Matthew real quick, if you will. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus, answering him, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And so what we basically have here, if you could see into the Greek, if you could see into the Greek here, the language that's used is that John continued to try to convince Jesus. In other words, it wasn't that Jesus showed up and John said, oh, wait a minute, no, you should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, you do me. And he goes, okay, I will. John looked at Christ 
And as Jesus came to him to be baptized, John continued to say, no, 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 you're supposed to baptize me. You're mightier than I am. You existed before I did. You should be the one baptizing me, not the other way around. And he persisted at that. But Jesus insisted, no, it's that you need to baptize me. And what's interesting about that is Jesus had his reasons, and we're going to touch on that. There was some specific reasons why Jesus needed to be baptized. I'm going to start with that. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? I'll be real frank. There are a lot of answers. They're all speculative. Most of them are inadequate. The reason is the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. Jesus gives us a, an answer that's a little bit difficult for us to process and understand. But some have said that it's to validate John's ministry, that Jesus simply went to validate John's ministry. This seems somewhat inadequate. John didn't need his ministry validated. The Old Testament scriptures have already done that. Some say it's that Jesus was setting an example of obedience for others. You know, he was baptized and we are to be baptized as well. Well, you can make probably a case for that. Um, but seeing as John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, that you know could potentially say, well, yeah, he just did it as an example for us since we have to repent. But again, it seems a bit inadequate to say that that was the reason. Um, Some say that Jesus baptized himself to associate himself with sinners. You could say, well, yeah, there, you know, he did. He sat with sinners. He sat with Matthew and the tax collectors. That's the people he hung out with. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily a good answer either. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter three, verse fifteen. The reason Jesus gives in Matthew chapter three, verse fifteen, is this: permitted at this time. In other words. There's something unique about this particular time that makes Jesus' baptism appropriate. So he says, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what he says to John is, John, I, I need to be baptized by you because there's something specific about this time, but it's also important because it's required to fulfill all righteousness. So it has something to do with fulfilling righteousness. I'm going to propose something to you that, again, like many of the other answers I gave you earlier, it's somewhat speculative, it's maybe even somewhat inadequate. But I believe that what Jesus was probably doing here was fulfilling an Old Testament requirement for priests. Leviticus chapter 16 indicates that the priests, before they engaged in service in the temple, had to ceremonially wash themselves. And again, it was required for them to do that. And considering that Jesus Christ is our high priest, it would make sense that before he begins to minister before he begins to take up his role as our high priest, it makes sense that he would symbolically, if you will, perform the requirement of the Old Testament. This is the beginning of Jesus' function and role as the high priest that intermediates between us and the Father. 
And so I believe that when Jesus says, this is required for righteousness, or to fulfill all righteousness, that it may very likely be that he is fulfilling the Old Testament requirement that the high priest must ceremonially wash before that happens. And I think this then identifies Christ somewhat symbolically as the high priest that he now becomes. Now again, that's somewhat speculative, but it seems to meet the requirements that Jesus lays out. Now why is it this time? Because it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is where he is introduced publicly. Prior to this, Jesus did not perform miracles or anything else. He did, he was, this, is, this is his coming out, if you will, as Messiah and High Priest. That is why he comes to John and says, there's something about this time, John, and it's about fulfilling all righteousness. So again, that's my speculation. Don't take it as, pardon the pun, the gospel truth. But I believe it fulfills at least the requirements of what we see in the text. So, while we can't know absolutely for sure if that's exactly why Jesus did that, we do know something else about the baptism, and this is where John's primary, or Mark's primary point is. God used the event, the baptism of Jesus, to identify Christ as his son. Look at what happens in verses 10 and 11. Immediately, when Jesus was baptized, as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son in whom you, or in you, I am pleased, or well pleased. So the first, there's, there's actually three things that happen here. The first thing that happens here is that the Spirit descended upon Jesus. In a pretty spectacular form as well. It says here that he came down in the form of a dove. Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. So why do you suppose the Spirit descended on Jesus here? The scriptures also tell us that. Why don't you turn to... Uh, well, just, I'll just read some of these. Um, the first one is that John tells us in chapter 3. I think it's chapter... Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll turn there. John chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 2, if I remember right. I didn't write down the reference, so... John 3... Nah, that's not the verse. Um, one of the things it does is it reveals Jesus Christ as the, um, as the Messiah to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, um, actually as recorded in the Gospel of John, says that the reason he knew that Jesus was the Messiah was because God told him, the one you see the Spirit descend upon is the Messiah. So God used this specific baptism to let John the Baptist know specifically, this is the one. Now I suspect that John the Baptist probably already thought, because he had said, one's coming after me, Jesus shows up, he knew Jesus from childhood, I'm sure he recognized something unique about him, but what's the, what's the one thing that absolutely says, no, this is him? If there, if John, we know that there was a period in John's life where he's in prison, and what does he do? He sends disciples to Jesus, and he says, "Are you really the one?" There's there's a, a tad of doubt, if you will, to that, probably because the expectations were that the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom, and Jesus didn't do that. And that might be one reason why John is struggling a little bit. But one of the things that God told John the Baptist was, "You'll know who it is when you see the Spirit descend upon him." And so one of the first things that 
um, happened at this baptism where Jesus saw, or where the Spirit came down on him, was God used it to identify Jesus for just John the Baptist. Another thing is that it, the Spirit was required to lead Jesus in his earthly ministry. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around, look at this, by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jump down to verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. When you go back to the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice something here. That as soon as Jesus was baptized, it says in verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. The reason the Spirit came down on Jesus here was to lead him, to empower him in his earthly ministry. Some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, he's God. Why did he need the Spirit to do that? We'll touch on that in a minute. Luke chapter 4 verse 18 also says that the Spirit empowered Jesus to not only preach, but to heal and perform miracles. When you look at passages like Matthew chapter 12, we'll turn there if you will, Matthew chapter 12, Verse 28, you'll see something interesting. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So how did Jesus cast out demons? By the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, I'll just read there. You can join me if you want, but I'll just flip there quickly here and give your fingers a break. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. You know, or you know of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Again, a reference to the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus to be able to cast out demons and to heal people. And so, another reason Jesus had the Spirit descend upon him here was because Jesus would use the power of the Holy Spirit to heal. I'm going to give you a couple more here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says the reason that Jesus was able to face death was that he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about him in the garden as he's praying. The torment, physically sweating drops of blood and saying, Lord, if there's any way that I don't have to go to the cross. But you know what? Your will, not mine. And Multiple times he goes back to his disciples and asks them to pray alongside with him before he goes back on his knees and begins to pray again. And what Hebrews tells us is that the reason he was able to do that and go to the cross was because of the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting, that's not all that different from us because Jesus told the disciples that they would be persecuted, arrested, threatened, put to death, and he said, but don't worry about what you have to say because what? The Spirit's going to give you what to say at the time that you need it. It's very similar. We're also told in 1 Peter and even Romans that it was by the power of the Spirit that Jesus was raised from the dead. So what is all this? There's an interesting principle and concept that I think helps us understand this. We talked about this before. When Jesus came in the flesh, what does it, I think we talked about this the Sunday before Christmas. What, does it, what did it mean for Jesus Christ to come in the flesh 
to become fully human and yet also be fully God at the same time. Because Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he emptied himself. But we, as, we, as we look through and understand that, it doesn't mean that he became less God and more human. Because again, he was fully God and fully human at the same time. But what he did was he subjected himself by giving up temporary use of many of his divine attributes. He didn't walk through walls until he was resurrected. Could he have? As God, certainly. But he didn't. He traveled around like the rest of us did. What we find as you go through the scriptures here is that Jesus said that everything he did was given to him by the Father to do. He was fully submissive to God the Father, only did what the Father wanted him to do, only said what the Father wanted him to say. All of that was done under the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way the scriptures lay this out is that that empowerment by the Holy Spirit was what Jesus relied upon in human form to do everything he did. He healed people by it. He cast out demons by it. He faced the cross by it. He battled temptation by it. The Spirit took him out into the wilderness. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus withstood the temptation. What we have there is the genuine concept of full and total and complete subjection, if you will, to God the Father, which required obedience and empowerment to and by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It doesn't make Christ any less God. What it does, it says, God, Christ, was willing to suspend the use of certain attributes and make himself totally and completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do what he did, which in some respects becomes our example. We need to do the same thing. And so one of the reasons why the Spirit descended upon Jesus at this time was because it was his anointing, if you will, meaning it was the way that God empowered him to carry out his earthly ministry. Especially at a time like this, because we see very quickly what happens. As soon as Jesus' public ministry starts, his opposition starts as well. The plan is put in motion to persecute him and put him to death, almost immediately. So the first thing that happens at his baptism is the Spirit descended upon him. The second thing is that God the Father speaks now. Look at verse 10. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now the text here in Mark says that he, meaning Jesus, saw the heavens open and the Spirit descend. So some have assumed that only Jesus saw it. The problem with that is that John in chapter 1 of John's Gospel says, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. So not only did Jesus see this happen, but John saw it as well. So we know at least two people there saw this happen. Whether or not others saw it, don't really know. I would assume so. It's kind of hard for a dove to come out of heaven and land on Jesus as a representation of the Holy Spirit and everybody's watching to be baptized and only Jesus and John see it. So I would assume that others saw it as well. Both of those are a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to read that with you, just two verses there. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. As 
Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed will not, he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And so what we find here is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. God actually speaking. And so when the dove descends and you hear the voice of God, it identifies Jesus Christ as God's son. Why? Because God said it himself. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. If there isn't any better witness or testimony to Jesus being the son of God than the father, then that's it. There's nowhere else to go. So to have God, the Father, the heavens open up and say, this is my Son, lets us know that He is the Son of God. The third thing that happens is that the Spirit immediately leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Look at uh, Mark 11 through 13. I mean, Mark chapter 3, 1, I'm sorry, verse 11 through 13. We'll pick up at verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was, in the, he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Mark only touches on this temptation very, very briefly. Um, Matthew and Luke provide quite a few more details. They say that he was out there for 40 days without food or water. He was out there being tempted. It was the purpose of his visiting the wilderness was to be tempted by Satan. I don't know why Mark doesn't provide more details on it. Probably because his purpose is already accomplished. He's the Son of God. This proves it. Um, But he throws in this detail about being taken out to the wilderness immediately. I think what Mark is doing is he's probably foreshadowing the ongoing interaction that Jesus will have with the demons throughout Mark. In fact, there's something rather interesting that happens in Mark's Gospel. A little bit later, Jesus is telling a parable where he reveals that in order for him to plunder the enemy's house, he has to first bind the strong man. Which means we're going to have an epic battle between Jesus and the enemy. And we see that play out in the, in the gospel a little bit, where Jesus is casting out demons. And these demons are trying to identify him and call him out. And, and Jesus is commanding authority over them by saying, shut your mouth, don't talk. Come out of him, go over there. And Jesus' explanation of all that is, I'm just binding the strong man because I'm going to plunder his house. I'm going to take what he thinks is his. It's going to be my inheritance. And so I think partly what Mark is doing here by by showing that immediately after the the baptism of Jesus is just a little bit of a foreshadowing of the battle between Jesus and Satan himself. And so when you when you look at these things all sort of put together, what John actually, or I'm sorry, what Mark actually does to demonstrate now that Jesus is the Son, he focuses on these three things: the Spirit depending or descending upon him, the voice of God coming out of the heavens and saying, "This is my Son," and then lastly, establishing or foreshadowing this battle between God and Satan. And he then uses that to sort of make his point. So what we really have here in his prologue, and we'll wrap it up with this, John has told us in the first verse, this is just the beginning. 
the good tidings, the ushering in of a brand new era of God's kingdom on earth. And it's through Jesus. And I'm going to show you that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God. And so he does that in the prologue. He says, all the evidence we need, really, is that John the Baptist was a forerunner. I kind of think about that sometimes, and I'm, uh, it, it kind of... God could have just sent Jesus, right? But then there might be some speculation to some degree. It's one thing to say, this is going to happen, but if you say, these things are going to happen before this happens, it's just been magnified in terms of the probability, right? And so John Mark here looks at this and he says... I'm going to show you that Jesus is Messiah. And I'm going to show you that he's the Son of God. And the first thing is, right out of the gate, John the Baptist came, just as promised, and told us this is who it is. Second thing is, I'm going to show you about his baptism and what happened there. Where not only did we see the Spirit descend upon him, just like the Old Testament told us, but we saw God the Father speak and open his mouth and say, this is my Son. You can't get any clearer than that. And then immediately, he goes off. It begins the battle, so to speak. So it's all actually rather simple here. You could almost end the gospel there, could you not? But instead now he's going to tell us a story. And so now he's going to use the real life experiences, the real life episodes, the historical facts of Jesus' life. And he's going to show us exactly how these two things play out. Remember, he kind of takes us partway through and declares again Jesus as Messiah through the mouth of Peter. And then he takes us to the end where he declares Jesus to be the Son of God through the mouth of the centurion. And through that whole story will show us ultimately that Christ is these two things because he accomplished God's redemptive plan by traveling from Judea all the way to Jerusalem where the climax of the story is, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, which ultimately proves exactly who Christ is.